we are reading from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This is God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is God's word. We are beginning a time studying the letter of Paul to Titus that we will look through over the next several months. And the letter of Titus is a little bit like if parents were about to go away for a long period of time and they were giving some instructions to one of their older responsible children who is then going to manage the household of several other unruly children. So the parents are writing this letter to the responsible child where they are giving him instructions and encouraging him as to how he is to manage the household. And in this letter, the parents are fully aware that at some stage the unruly children will grab hold of this letter and will read it. So as they are writing, they want to be very clear in a way that is understandable to the children themselves as to how they are to act within the household. And the way that they do this is they want to show a very clear link between theory and practice. So they give the theoretical instruction of be kind to one another, which is something that is common in every household. And these parents want their children to be kind to one another, but they don't just leave it in the theoretical so that some of the unruly children can be a bit subjective and say, well, what does it really mean to be kind to one another? And, and sort of subjectivize it in a way that actually ends up not being kind at all. So they say, these parents give the theory of be kind to one another, but then they give very clear practical application of what this looks like. So be kind to one another by cleaning up after yourselves every time you eat something or take a shower, clean up your clothes so that no one else has to clean up after you and be kind to one another by making sure that you wait for every child to come together at the dinner table so that you can eat together. They give the clear theory and practice so there is nothing left to the imagination or nothing left to subjectivize in order to uh, undo the real substance of the theory of being kind to one another. And I say all of this because Paul's letter to Titus is largely about Titus managing a household of faith on the island of Crete. And in the letter, Paul gives to Titus, he is very clear on the link between theory and practice. Paul might say the link between doctrine and duty the doctrines of God and of humanity that we have, like how we are saved, like what God has done in creation and for humanity, the doctrines, and then how they lead to our duty, to our duty as followers of Jesus in living out the realities of these doctrines. 
Paul in this letter shows the the clear relationship, how inextricably linked doctrine and duty are. See, when you have practice without theory, then you end up like a cloud in a storm that is just blown about by every new situation and new idea because there is nothing stable upholding your practice. It is not rooted in anything. But the moment that your theory does not lead you to practice, then you end up just like an iceberg, cold and rigid. And when things press up against you, you either just stay immovable or eventually you just shatter if something strong enough presses up against you. Paul's letter to Titus here keeps doctrine and duty, theory and practice, faith and works together in a wonderful bond. Now, as we look at this letter, at the first three verses today, as we look at the beginning, Paul's introduction here, how he introduces himself, gives us a helpful background for him as a person. So how does Paul introduce himself? We see here the first three words, Paul, a servant. He is a servant of God. The word is actually a slave. Paul is a slave of God. This is the apostle Paul who by this stage had evangelized thousands and thousands of people. He had planted several churches. He had begun getting a reputation as someone who demons would tremble before and was turning the world upside down, proclaiming that this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified is the Christ of God. He is God himself. And yet Paul here refers to himself as a humble slave. He takes the lowest status. But Paul is not simply a slave of God. He is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a messenger. Not any messenger, but they are a messenger who has authority. A messenger who is given God-given authority. And as an apostle, as a sent one, the word apostle literally means sent one, which is why we get messenger. A messenger is sent by someone. Paul is sent by God for a task. And that task primarily finds itself in how he describes his duty here in verse 3. After he has detailed these wonderful themes, which we will look at today, the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life. Paul says that all of these things God had promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word. And how did it eventually come to people? Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God has revealed these wonderful truths of the faith of God's elect, things like the hope of eternal life, the purpose of all existence. He has revealed them primarily through the preaching, the apostolic preaching of the Word of God. And so Paul holds this so dear because it is incomparably the greatest and the most important news of all human history. Remember that 
Of course, in the first century, this is still largely an oral culture. 99% of people could not read, so the transmission of communication was done orally through the preaching of God's word, which is why it is so important. But even now, with 99 plus percent of people being able to read, God still has a primary purpose for the preaching of God's word, the proclaiming of the truths of God, which is happening right now. God still has a place for the preaching of God's word as one of the primary means he uses to communicate his truths to people. Preaching is a means of grace from God to hungry and thirsty souls to be nourished. And this is what Paul was tasked with as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that duty has flowed on to preachers for thousands of years to proclaim these wonderful truths of God. So Paul, the preacher, is writing to Titus, who was one of his gospel co-workers, a a Gentile, a non-Jew who was following the Messiah. Paul is writing to Titus and instructing him as to how he should shepherd the Christians in the Mediterranean island of Crete. Now, we don't have many details about the early followers of Jesus in Crete, but what we do know about the Cretans is that they were notoriously unruly. In Paul's letter, if you look at verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul quotes from one of the Cretan prophets from probably uh, four or five centuries earlier, a man named Epimenides, who once said, he was a Cretan himself, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this is true. Right you are. This is an accurate representation of Cretan culture. That they are liars, they are evil beasts, and they are lazy gluttons. This is Oh, not really all that appealing for drawing people to Crete. But this was the reality of those on Crete. So there is a lot of order to be brought to this disorderly culture, which is why in verse 5, which we will get to in a few weeks from now, Paul's main purpose in writing to Titus is so that you may put what remains into order, so that you may make it straight, put it into order. Because there's a lot of disorder on Crete and Titus's task with bringing order to the church, to the believers here. So throughout the letter of Titus, we will see Paul desires him to appoint godly leadership, to silence false teachers, to rebuke those of poor character, to teach good doctrine, which will then result in people living godly lives. And as Paul writes this letter to Titus, he is both personally encouraging and instructing Titus, but he is also very clearly drawing out particular themes that he wants the church at large to hear and to understand. And these themes can largely be narrowed down to three particular themes that we see in the introduction that are then going to be uh, the basis of the remainder of Paul's letter. And the three themes are 
are uh, inextricably held together. They are tied to each other. But they are what we see here that Paul marks for sort of setting the scene for the rest of Titus. These three main themes, uh, the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and in the hope of eternal life. So these are the main themes, the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and the hope of eternal life. So the first theme that Paul gives in his introduction here that will then be woven throughout the letter is the faith of God's elect. Paul is a slave and a messenger for the sake of the faith of God's elect. What does Paul mean by the faith of God's elect? There are two things that I want to clear up and help us understand what Paul means by the faith of God's elect. Elect. The firstly is that faith is the same as trust. And I say that because faith has been hijacked in our culture to mean something that suggests simply a subjective feeling you have when you don't really know something. So you might often hear people talk about faith in sort of wafty abstract terms, in a George Michael-esque way. I've just got to have faith. And often you hear someone saying, well, you have your faith, but I trust in science. But grammatically, it could easily be said that we have faith in science because faith is trust. It's literally the same word in the Greek language, which is why in verse 3, if you look at Paul's wording here, he says, the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. Entrusted is the word for faith. It's just a passive verb for faith. We just don't really have an English word that says in faith, so entrusted. It's the same word as Paul uses here for the sake of the faith or the trust of God's elect. And this is important to understand because trust in our society, in our culture, it seems like it carries more substance. You trust in something that you can have assurance about, a level of assurance. Now, there is still a level of uh, uncertainty in terms of us as followers of Jesus having a finite mind, believing in an infinite God. There is a, a level of uh, a gap, I suppose. But our faith is not in anything that we cannot understand. Our faith is not in anything wafty or abstract. We trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We trust in how God has revealed himself to us. So when you hear faith throughout the Bible and throughout the letter to Titus, we should not think of it in any wafty terms. Think of it as trust. Trust in something that has substance, not something you have no idea about. Secondly, we have to distinguish between the two different meanings of faith. There are two common meanings of faith throughout the Bible. There is firstly faith on an individual level where we all must have faith, that is have trust. We all must trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Without this faith, it is impossible to please God. Without trusting in him, each individually, we will all individually stand before God and give an account for our life. And the only thing that will matter is whether we have trusted in Jesus Christ fully. 
This is the individual level of trust. But then there's this second meaning. There's faith on a collective level. This is the faith which represents all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the overarching, distinguishing mark of the church, the faith of the church, which has been handed down from generation to generation. This is the kind of faith which Jude, the author who wrote his little letter, the second last book of the Bible, Jude writes and urges Christians to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So he is talking about this overarching faith, which encompasses all of the wonderful truths of Christianity, the wonderful doctrines of God, everything that we hold dear in the word of God. This is the faith that he is talking about, this collective faith that we contend for, that which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And here Paul is referring primarily to this overarching collective faith of the church. And we know this because he says the faith of God's elect, which is this collective group. So Paul sees his role as someone who is to encourage and lead followers of Jesus in this collective faith, which means he is to ensure that this faith, all of the teachings of the church are kept pure and untainted, that it is handed down, that it has been, as Jude says, contended for, kept pure, undefiled. So Paul contends for the faith of God's elect. This is why he is a slave and a messenger. Now, who is God's elect? God's elect are all those whom God has chosen for the foundation of the world to have trust in Christ, to have faith in Christ, the elect. We are about to have a national federal election. It's an election because we are going to choose a representative for our country. This is God's elect, those whom God has chosen since salvation rests entirely upon his foreknowledge upon his mercy. We bring nothing to the table. In his mercy, he chooses to save some when really he has no need to save any. Yet God elects some to salvation. And a simple way to understand this is really it is all those who are truly following Jesus, who will persevere because God will sustain them. This is the true church. And the way people have understood God's elect and the church in our world full of all different people is through the visible church and the invisible church. They distinguish between the invisible church, which is made up of every true believer throughout all history, the universal church whom God has foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this is the elect. And it's the invisible church because we can't fully see that. But then there is this visible church. The visible church is what we can see. The visible church is the, the people who we visibly see in this world now, who profess to follow Christ, who are part of 
things like the institutional church, all of those who are verbally professing, who are physically gathering in the church that we see. And the visible church will always be made of the elect and the non-elect. The, the wheat and the tares, as Jesus says, must grow together. And we are not called to find the invisible church. That's not our task. We are called to faithfully gather as the visible church, as messy as that is, because we are humans and we are sinful. We gather faithfully and we leave the rest up to God. We wait for the final day of vindication when the invisible church will be made Visible. So when Paul here says that he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, it's not like Paul only deals with the elect as if he's lifting up people's tunics and seeing if they have an E written on them. He is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, which is to say that Paul is fighting to ensure that the true faith is kept pure and untainted and communicated to all people who will be believers and unbelievers, but it will be the faith of God's elect because when the faith is kept pure and untainted, he knows that all those who are truly following Jesus, who are being called, will be drawn to that faith. And that is why he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He has been tasked with keeping the faith pure, with handing it down, with proclaiming the truths of Scripture, with keeping it consistent with what has been revealed by God. So Paul is a slave and an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Secondly, he is also there for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This is tied to the faith of God's elect. We have faith in truth. We know the truth. We trust in it because it is true, because God has revealed it to us. So to demonstrate here that faith is not simply a wafty faith that is detached from reality, Paul very clearly ties our faith to a knowledge of what is true. Paul is deeply concerned with a proper knowledge of one true faith for all who profess to have faith. Faith is not what you have when you don't know something. It could be said that faith is what you have when you want to know something, when you want to understand something that is so far beyond our comprehension. Faith is the gateway to understanding. There was the famous uh, phrase that was first coined almost 2,000 years ago by a very famous man named Augustine. And then it was slightly changed, but still keeps the same meaning about 800 years after that by another famous man called Anselm of Canterbury. And the phrase was a Latin phrase that said, credo ut intelligam which means, I believe so that I may understand. This was in contrast to people saying, I need to understand everything so that I can believe. Whereas they would say, no, we believe, we put our trust in what is set before us, and that leads us to understanding. 
that leads us to understanding more of these wonderful truths, which is the pattern that we see here that Paul details. He's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Their faith leads them to a knowledge of the truth, to understanding the truth. Paul's desire is that the Cretans would know this truth and their knowledge of the truth would then conform them more and more to this pattern of godliness. Notice how Paul determines here the evidence for whether someone is following the truth. He says, their knowledge of the truth, and then uses a grammatical construction here, which is to elaborate on the truth, to say, well, which truth? The one which accords with godliness. Now, Paul is not saying that there are multiple truths and we're following this truth that leads us to godliness. He's saying there is one truth and this is an expansion on that truth. This is how we know that it is the truth because it accords with godliness. It follows a pattern of godliness. Godliness is devotion. Godliness is reverence. We used to call it piety. So it's not simply moral living, though living according to good morals is absolutely a part of godliness, but it's not the main part. And this is important because in the modern church, we do have this very unhealthy culture of many people being brought up in the church, assuming that to be Christian is just to not have sex before marriage, to have a relatively good church attendance, to not swear, and to to try and be a good person, to yes, know that salvation is in Christ alone, but really the evidence for you will be in these basic levels of morality. And it becomes void, detached of the actual source the actual engine of morality, when that is simply what godliness is about. Godliness is not simply about moral living. The Christian life is not simply about moral living. Godliness is where your heart has been absolutely ravished by the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, something miraculous happens and your desires change. Your desires become directed toward the God who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. Your desire is found in serving this God who has served you. Your delight is found in obedience to your Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. This is godliness, devotion, when you absolutely adore Jesus Christ, not simply living according to good morals. There are plenty of atheists who have exceptional morals by worldly standards. A life of godliness, a life of this type of devotion becomes the evidence that you have grasped the truth, or it is better said, it becomes the evidence that the truth has grasped you. The truth has gripped a hold of your life. It's like someone who is in building school learning to build a house, they may know the theory, they may be able to repeat back all of the theory of how to build a house and have everything correct, but really the final evidence, the true evidence that they have actually grasped the truth of the theory will be be finally when they physically demonstrate 
that they have built a house, that they can build a house. And likewise, we as followers of Jesus can repeat all of these doctrines, the creeds of Christianity, as much as we want, but the evidence will be in this life that follows a pattern of godliness, reverence, and devotion. So the moral reformation that Paul is expecting here for the Cretans is only going to come through their knowledge of the truth when their hearts have been gripped by that. Right practice comes from understanding right doctrine. William Wilberforce, many of you would know, he was the main proponent in abolishing the slave trade through the 18th and 19th century. He was a British parliamentarian and he was a faithful follower of Jesus and he fought for decades to abolish the atrocities of the slave trade of the time, which was literally stealing people from their home, placing them on a ship and sending them off to a life of hard slavery, treated as possessions. And Wilberforce wholeheartedly believed that the only way that the church would actually be able to fight for this and fight for every future issue like this will be as long as they wholeheartedly are committed to the doctrines of Christianity, to understanding the deep, deep doctrines of how wicked sinners are made right by a holy God. And so Wilberforce actually comments on why he felt the church in Britain at that time had lost its power and lost its way. And he says, the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gains strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity, which is just the doctrines of Christianity, justification by faith alone, these sorts of things, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity, they went more and more out of sight and as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutrients. He's saying that as soon as we left the peculiar doctrines, the idea of how God has justified ungodly people, when we forgot about that, all of the morals went out of sight. Wilberforce even says that the problem with the state of the church at the time is that they do not consider Christianity as a scheme for justifying the ungodly. They think it's simply about living morally, attending church, being a good person. Wilberforce said, as soon as you think like that, you're cut off from the source of morality. It comes from the realization of what God has done in Jesus Christ, this amazing God who has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. It's interesting that in chapter 3 of Titus, Paul starts talking about how we need to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all People And he says, because we were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So he's calling the people to live morally. And he says, from verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He's tying the need for godliness and, and moral living to the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything we have brought to the table, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of God's mercy, because of the gift, the grace of God. That's where the fruit of morality comes from, when we realize that we have corrupt morals, totally corrupt, and still Christ dies in our place to take our sin upon himself and wash us and renew us. When you realize that Christianity is not simply about living a moral life, but it is about a gracious and loving God who sent his son to die in the place of wicked sinners like you and me. This is what overflows. This is the kind of love that overflows within us to produce godliness, the knowledge of this truth. Finally, the last thing that we see throughout the letter to Titus, which is deeply connected to the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, is then this hope of eternal life. Paul is a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, the one which accords with godliness on the basis of, in the hope of eternal life. It's saying that this is totally linked with and on the, the basis of this hope of eternal life. The faith and the knowledge of truth is wrapped up in this hope of eternal life. This hope is what God promised before the ages began in his eternal plan, as Paul says here, and has revealed now through the preaching of the word, the reality that God is bringing us into eternal life. How does John describe eternal life? This is eternal life, that we would know God, that we would know him, that the treasure of life would be found in Jesus Christ. And we hope in this eternal life, which is found wholly in Jesus Christ. See, what is eternal life? Well, life is found in Christ. In him is life. Outside of him is death and decay, but inside of Christ is life and life abundantly. And the hope for the follower of Jesus is that though we have tasted this and it tastes good, we have tasted it now. But the hope is that the fullness of it is coming. The fullness of this life is coming. So we set our hope on this as sure as day follows night. Christ will return. He will return and pierce the sky. And the whole purpose of human existence will be realized in that very moment. Every knee will bow. And it sounds crazy to a people who live in this secular culture, who swim in this water where the emphasis is to focus 
solely on the here and now where we don't believe in anything beyond what we can see. So things like eternity and life after death remain in the abstract. They're weird things that we just are not comfortable with dealing with. So we put them away and no one thinks about them. But that is a lie. That is ignorance. The reality is that we were made for eternity and it will be in either heaven or hell. And the hope for the follower of Jesus is the true life which is eternal, will be found in Jesus Christ. So we wait for that life to appear, which is why Paul says in chapter 2, our blessed hope, we wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have, that our life, which as Paul says in Colossians as well, is hidden with Christ. But when he returns, everything will be revealed. Our life will be revealed. The glory of God will be made known. That is what we were made for, to worship it, not to achieve it for ourselves, but to behold the glory of God, to bask in it, to enjoy its radiance. And all of it is found in Jesus Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. Yet when he returns, the fullness of God will be realized with the fullness of life. We have tasted that as an appetizer. We have a foretaste of that life now. But the appetizer is like having a tiny little crumb when there is a full banquet waiting and we have the full banquet the full realization of eternal life waiting for us when christ returns and so we set our hope on that